of them. That'd be really good. Um, all right, so tonight um, what I want to share from is what is in the lectionary. The lectionary is this great little guide that the Anglican Church puts out which tells you which scriptures to read which day, and over three years it takes you through the whole scriptures. Um, and so one of the cool things when we do something from the lectionary is there are um, literally thousands of other congregations all over the world who within this kind of 24-hour cycle will be meditating on the same thing that we are, which I find really cool. Eh? So it's not just us but we kind of in, in step with what the Spirit's doing. And it's funny how often people who don't even know about what's coming up in the lectionary will end up like the Spirit will speak to them around it, like um, Matt and Belinda kind of pulled a couple of things from today's scripture during the course. And, and so um, what we're going to look at today is Romans seven fifteen to 25. And I reckon this is like such a 101 gospel message. But one of the things with 101 gospel messages is that... Um, if you have not heard the gospel before, like if you're here and you're not sure about faith, um, then this is like, this is who we think Jesus is. So this is a good night to be here. But if you're someone who has known it for a while, like it should actually fill our hearts with joy to hear this message again. Like it should be exciting to dwell on like the most, most um, fundamental things of who Jesus is. Like that's actually really exciting. And sometimes we can go, oh, I've heard this before. But actually, all the kind of research says that millennials, even though we have heard it before, haven't really retained any of it. <laughs> so maybe for some of us tonight that we actually feel like we're hearing this for the first time too. And I can tell you as I was preparing this that I was like, whoa, that's in there. Um, so we're going to do yeah, Romans 7, 15 to 25. And it's a little, it's a little bit of a confusing one. Um, so I'm going to read it out. 7, 15 to 25, it's Paul speaking. He says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? So it gets very confusing, eh? Like all the do's and do nots. Like if you got to the end of that and you're like, I don't really know what happened there. That's just fine. Like we're going to do it a few more times. Um, but, but before we kind of really get to the guts of this passage, there's a couple of things we need to get our head around. And the first of those is he talks in it about this thing called the law. He says, I find this law at work. And he talks about God's law. Um, and we actually need to know what this law is. And I think a lot of people actually don't know, when we read about what Jesus did with the law, we're like, what law? Like the police law, the legal law? Um, and the law was this thing. Basically, God liberates his people from slavery in Egypt. And he takes them through the desert to go um, to the promised land. And along the way, it takes them 40 years to get there, where it should have taken them like a year, because they pretty much walked in circles while God tried to get through to them over and over and over again. And while he's at it, he gives them this law, and it's a law given over Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, so over four books of the scriptures. 
And the idea was that these people who had found their identity as slaves would learn a new identity as being the people of God. So they would learn a culture and a custom of what it was to follow God. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the law. It was a reordering of their customs and identity. Leviticus 20.26 says, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So the law at its essence is be holy as I am holy. Learn to be like me. Learn to be my people. If you hear about the law, that's what it's about. And the law kind of included a really bizarrely broad selection of stuff. So you have like, don't steal an ox. Clearly a lot of ox theft going on at this point. Don't kill one another. Don't steal your mate's wife. Always good. Um, and, um, and so there were those ones which were kind of Ten Commandments-y, but then it got like bizarrely specific in places as well. So like, how not to get food poisoning is part of the law. Like, don't mix these things together. They will get you sick. And we kind of read these parts and we go, oh my gosh, God just really doesn't want them to eat pork. You know, pork is delicious. What's he doing? But there's actually this thing of like, no, this is going to make you sick. Do not eat it. Um, how to make clothes that will last. You know, so that the stuff you make, you can actually wear for a few years. And it's not like you got it from like Jewish glasses or something like that. Um, <laughs> Um, sorry, some of these are a little grizzly, but how long to not have sex with a woman after she's given birth? And do you know that actually what's later down in the scriptures is the same recommended medical length that we still have today? This is actually a thing of like, yeah, it really sucks that these guys can't kind of just chill out for a few weeks and, and just let her recover. Um, so I'm just going to tell them, you know, just, um, <laughs> just give her some time, boys. Um, and... Um, um, and it gets more full on than that. He says, what to do if you have a wet dream? Um, God, God has, a, has a law for that. Um, how to stop menstruation from causing infection. Like, he really, like, oversteps the boundaries, eh? Like, these are, like, not okay things to, like... Like, if I, as a church leader, you know, were to, like, walk up to one of our church and go, like, hey, just want to give you some tips on avoiding infection with menstruation. You'd be like, stop mansplaining, get away from me, um, you weirdo. And then you'd probably go and talk to Anna about it, and she'd be like, Scotty, you weirdo. Um, and... Um, and so this, the, there is this thing within the law that is about the holistic well-being of the people of God. So it's mental, it's emotional, it's physical, it's spiritual, and it's also about how to make amends with God when things have gone wrong. When you've walked away with God, how do we get right with God? And so they had this thing of taking something precious to you and sacrificing it to God. And there were like different levels of what you could sacrifice to God depending on your wealth. So the wealthy guys might have to bring like a spotless lamb and another guy who maybe didn't have any money could bring a like mangy Cuba Street pigeon or something like that, you know? <laughs> there were options here. Um, and so there was ways to make amends with God within this law. The problem we see across pretty much the whole of Scripture is that the more exhaustive the, list, the law became, the more useless the people of God became at doing it. Like, the more they tried to do it, the more they stuffed it up. That is pretty much the history of God's people. The history of the Old Testament is humanity's failure to make amends with God in their own strength. They try and try again to bridge this distance between themselves and the Father, and they fail at it. And so then we arrive at this book of Romans. So we're going to um, Romans 7 is where we're going to end up. But I 
I realised as I was studying this that we actually need to know what happens in Romans chapter 1 to 6. So I'm going to give you the most breakneck speed summary of Romans 1 to 6. Um, And Romans is arguably the best summary of what Jesus has done for us. Like from the Gospels alone, we don't necessarily understand what Jesus' life means. And Paul goes theological and goes, this is what Jesus did. This is how it all works. And most of our theology today as the church is from Paul's understanding expressed there in Romans. So understanding this stuff is pretty important. So if you want, if you are someone taking notes or you want to record this, this is some good stuff because everything I'm about to read, about 12 different things, are like fundamental Christian theology. This is like stuff you just want to know. Okay, so this is me, this is my, I think there's yeah, there's 12 things here, and they summarise probably, I don't know, about three or 400 verses. Um, so, the law was given by God to his people so that they could walk with him. The law is how humanity knew what sin was and how to live in harmony with God. But the law seemed to make us want to sin even more. It's kind of part one. We are judged by God in the measure we judge others. Jesus says this, judge not, lest ye be judged. So the moment we are judging our brother or sister, we step into the system where we too will be judged in the same measure we judge them. We say, I will measure my own righteousness. And so God sort of says, "You you can have that if you want, and therefore if you fail to attain it, you will reap the consequences of that. We must be righteous and sinless according to the law to be accepted by God. That means we're stuffed. We can never fulfill the commands of the law. But God made another way outside of the law revealed through Jesus. The law has power over us while we are living. So when Jesus died... He arose outside the law. When he went to the grave, the law went to the grave with him. So grace that comes in Jesus no longer comes by right action. Last part. When we are baptised, we die with Christ and rise with him free from the law. Some at that point say, let sin heaps so that grace keeps growing. But Paul says, why would we live in the ways we have already died to? So you may want to re-listen to that, but that there, like that is all important stuff. You know, if we can get our head around those 12 sentences, that is kind of very much the crux of our New Testament theology. Um, And you know, you could then, you could meditate on those and then read Romans 1 to 6. And so then we come to Romans 7, And Paul takes all this theology and all this breaking down of what did Jesus mean and suddenly he makes it not just like existential or big, but he makes it super personal. He makes it about himself. He takes all these big lofty concepts and he makes it about his own sin and his own brokenness. And it seems as he reads it that he gets more and more anxious and irrational, that he just kind of bubbles over. Part of the way through, he seems to sort of stop making sense. And so I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to read it like I think Paul wrote it. Is that cool? 
And I want you to listen to this passage with your new knowledge about Romans 1 to 6 and with your knowledge of the law. If you want to close your eyes, you can or whatever will help you. Okay, so I'm going to get a little bit dramatic here. This is how I think, this is how I think Paul would have done it. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing all the time. Now, if I do what I didn't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but a sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there beside me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see this other law at work in me. It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Whoa. Can you imagine Paul writing this? He goes for six or seven chapters going into the theology of this. And then he goes, oh my word, what does this mean for me? It means I am a wretched man. What will I do with this machine of death that I am trapped within? This powerful way. It gets a little less confusing. So Paul is saying humanity tries to do the right things, but ends up believing our right behavior will get us to God. We do the right things, and we think our right behavior will get us to God, but we've missed it. And if we don't do that, then grace has come, and humanity starts to believe that because we have grace, we can do whatever we want. And that's not right either. So when we have a law... We fail to attain it, and when we have grace, we flout it. What do we do? You know, where do you live in this tension? The things we want to do, we often don't. The evil we want to stop, we keep doing. Even when we want to do good, our motives are peppered with sickness, brokenness, and dysfunction. And our best efforts just keep falling over again and again. Even when we try to be free, we are still prisoners of our desires. And so we're left in this kind of, this interesting no man's land. How many people know what Paul is talking about? How many people have said something similar to, I am a wretched man trapped in this death machine. You've tried so many times to follow God out of your deepest and most sincere heart. You've had the best intentions when you started out. You might have even thought God told you to do it. But you continue to make a mess of it. Even the best of you seems never to be able to quite get it right as it is laid out. You know, I remember a few years ago, I used to go across to St. Peter's opposite Zeal and pray there every afternoon. And I did this for probably about two or three years and and read the, the, the liturgy and would pray on my knees and talk to God. And then I started to get kind of sick and that discipline fell off. And when that discipline began, it was this beautiful thing that brought life to me every day. You know, it was like it was like filling my heart with God. And then came this time of life where I couldn't do it anymore. And all of a sudden I felt a million miles from God. But there was a lie. God was right there where he had been the whole time. But do you see that the thing I began to do for intimacy with God became a law unto me? 
where the moment it was removed, I felt distant from God. You know, a good place to look for the law in your life might be the thing where if you don't do it, or if you don't not do it, or do the things you do not want to do not do, (laughs) you feel guilty about it. Or you feel somehow further from God about it. And you know, that's what happened. The thing that set out, I set out to bring me life, started to bring death within me. Even the thing that started with pure intentions. You know, I think one of the interesting things on a bigger level is how we as the church go to the developing world, you know, to bring the gospel or to bring like resources and we go with the best intentions. But it's like with every gift we hand out with the left hand, we reap destruction with the other hand. We're caught between these two tensions and everything we do that it just seems there's nothing fully pure that comes from us sometimes. We're all a bit useless. And I think there are these laws and accusations that constantly tell us we are useless that make us come to that place of what am I, a wretched man trapped in this death machine. I'm sure we've all felt like that. So I just want to quickly go through three of these kind of laws, I think, and how they look for us today. Is that cool? You guys following me all right? Yep, good. These three laws, okay. And I want to do three stories of women from the book of John because I just think Jesus is just like the original feminist. Um, And and I'm going to tie them to Romans 8. So number one, there are the laws we put on ourselves. You know, I remember when I was um, probably 15 or 16, and some people may relate to this, the high point of my Christian life would be the end of each year where I'd get to go to a Christian camp. And it was like um, my devotion to God had blah, 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 all year. And by the end of the year, I'd kind of come to this place where I just wasn't really doing anything about my faith. And so I'd be like, this weekend, the Lord is going to put it right. And I'll be sweet for the whole next year, even though the last three I kind of spun out. This one is going to be different. And I remember going along to this one camp and I was so excited. And then on the first night of the camp, the whole campsite flooded. And we had to go home. I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm going to be without God for two years in a row. And you know, there was this, this, this law that I'd put upon myself where when I wasn't doing the things that would make God want to draw near to me, therefore God had been absent from me for the last year. Now I wore this thing around my neck and actually God was as near as God had ever been. But I'd got this idea in my head that until I could have a transcendent, tangible experience, God would not be near me. I'd put this law upon myself. You know, in John 12, there is this story where Jesus is hanging out with these rich, powerful men in this kind of palatial house, and they're reclining out and and dropping grapes into their mouths and sculling back wine and probably fine cheeses and antipasto platters, having the time of their life, and, and the conversations are going deep. And then in walks this lady of the night. This this prostitute from the street walks in. In the middle of their conversation. And she gets down on her hands and knees. And she goes to Jesus' feet. And she begins to weep on his feet. And then she grabs her hair. And she wraps her hair around like a towel. And then she grabs a year's perfume worth a year's worth of wages. And she pours it all over his feet. And continues to weep. 
and rub his feet with her hair. How full on is that? Like, how, like, uncomfortable would that situation be? Like, just, like, let's just consider how, like, uncomfortable that would be. Like, I even imagine hanging out at Cuba Vale one night if we were, I don't know, just hanging out having cups of tea, and someone just walked in off the street and began to wash Alicia's feet with her hair. (laughs) It's very odd. And in this weirdness, in this bizarreness, in the kind of the brokenness, in the I do, I do not ofness of the whole thing, Jesus welcomes her and somehow says, this is what I want. This is what I want from the people who follow me. You know, what God says to the laws we put upon ourselves is that there is no law that separates us from the love of God. It doesn't matter how long it was since you last talked to him. It doesn't matter how much you may hate him at the moment. It doesn't matter whose bed you woke up in this morning. It doesn't matter what drink you were drinking at the R-bar till 1am last night, Ty. (laughs) (laughs) And Dan... He's over there, (laughs) recovering. (laughs) Romans 8.38 For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's powerful, eh? Whatever happened in the last 24 hours or in the last 72 hours or the last week or the last month, if this is the first time that you feel like you've sat in the presence of God for a year, then he welcomes you. And the laws we put on ourselves of how distant we see ourselves being from him, it's all bullshit. Number two, the laws others put on us, or that we perceive they put on us, uh, about a couple of years ago, I came back from um, this trip uh, to Melbourne to this conference, and I saw um, a friend of ours speak at this conference, and I was totally inspired by the freedom in which this guy just just declared the gospel. And around that time, like I, I love, love, love speaking to people. Like I just love it. This is one of my favourite things ever. Um, <laughs> I hate the prep, but this is fun. Um, and... Um, And so what I was doing around that time is I was kind of self-sabotaging every opportunity because I had this fear that if I did the thing I was good at, then my ego would kind of rear up with it. But something I kind of discovered is that if you just don't do the things so you don't see your ego, your ego doesn't go away. It just gets to hide along with all the talents people probably want you to use. But I remember like sitting out in in Lyle Bay one day um, and um, I was in in our car and I just had my hands in front of me and I was praying to God after I got back and I saw God um, show me this picture that he was putting these tools in my hands and every time he put them in my hands I would hand them back to him and then he would put them back in my hands and then I would hand them back to him and on and on it went and then God was just like take the tools (laughs) you know (laughs) like take the things I've given you stop self-sabotaging And so I went on this journey where I was like, hang on, maybe it's some messed up Kiwi thing that won't allow me to be okay with being good at the things I'm good at. And so I began to like take opportunities and I was like, I'm going to 
finish writing this book, I'm going to go speak to different crowds and things like that. And, and, um, and one of the interesting things that happened along this and often happens in, in Kiwi culture is that a friend I'd had a while ago started spreading rumours that I'd like overcooked and that it had become the Scotty show and that I'd become self-interested and self-promotional. And it was a really painful thing to hear these things swirling around when you know the journey you've been on. When you know that that's not what it is at all, that actually you've been in a dialogue with God and actually you've put your ego before God, you actually just want to follow him where he's leading. But there is a sense in which this guy was putting a law on me to conform to the cultural expectations of New Zealand because he couldn't handle the idea of someone being confident in what God had given them. And these laws get put on us a bunch. There's, um, there's this interesting moment in John 8 And it's in the heat of this feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles went for a few days. And so people would come to town and there would not be enough accommodation around. So people would put up tents everywhere. And then they would drink a lot of wine. Like a lot of wine for this religious festival. And inevitably what happens, like can you imagine what would happen if Parachute had a lot of wine in it? Like what do you think those teenagers would get up to? They would crawl in and out of each other's tents. <laughs> and all sorts of noises would be heard in the night. <laughs> and lots of kids would be born nine months later with names like Daniel and Matthew and Josiah. Um, <laughs> and so what has happened is the Feast of Tabernacles has been gone, going on and all these people have come to town and they're all jacked up on wine and excitement and they're crawling in and out of each other's tents doing things they shouldn't be doing and on one of these mornings of the Feast of Tabernacles these Pharisees find this one woman sleeping with a man who's not her husband and they drag her out naked into the street and they say that because of what she has done they will stone her to death and Jesus steps between them and he says that same thing we talked about earlier he says basically In the measure you judge, you will be judged. You, without sin, cast the first stone. And he writes in the dirt, which I think Shane Claiborne said earlier this year, said, if this doesn't work, you'd better be ready to run. Um, I think it's actually for anyone who's done, like, social work stuff. I think he drew the Cartman Triangle. Does anyone know that? Look up the Cartman Triangle. It's hilarious. Um, And... um, And so he says, whoever is without sin cast the first stone. So what does God say to these labels that people put upon us, to these laws they put upon us, to the ways they want to stone us? Well, Romans 8, 33, 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, no one else. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In the grace of Jesus, we are free from the laws and expectations that are placed upon us to conform. And while we don't exercise cheap grace, while we try not to do that thing where we go, well, I can do whatever I want because Jesus has done it, whatever we have done, Christ is for us. The final one of these is the laws we believe mistakenly are from God. 
When I um, came to faith, some of you may relate to this, but when I came to faith, it's really hot up here. Um, when I came to faith, I, uh, it was in like a, an Anglican church that was kind of charismatic, Pentecostal. Um, and, uh, and one of the amazing things about coming to faith in that kind of environment is you have these really tangible experiences of the, of the Holy Spirit. So my earliest kind of knowledge of God was um, a sense of a very physical presence of him, which is great, and if that's what you're experiencing, epic. Um, but inevitably, um, what that kind of created in me was this perception that what I felt and what God was saying were always the same thing which is a really dangerous place to be, eh? Because it says in the scriptures that the heart is wicked and deceitful. So if what I feel is what God is saying, then God is becoming a reflection of my wicked heart rather than being God. And, um, and so there was this, this, this law upon God and then there came this point where I was quite sick and all the feelings in life went away. And all of a sudden it felt like God had totally gone away too. And so this law I had believed about what it meant for God to be near to me, I found not to be true at all. But instead, for a long time, I had the belief that I must have done something wrong or done something to offend God. Or there must be, you know, and people would ask me, like they asked, you know, Job, in the book of Job, what have you done to offend God? You must have done something, you know? These laws we believe about God... Rob Bell in his new book says, sometimes it's our idea about God that gets in the way of God. Sometimes it's our idea about God that gets in the way of God. And you know, there's this uh, story in John 4 of this idea about God that the Jews and the Samaritans had. And it was this idea that eventually God would come and the Messiah would raise people from the dead on Mount Zion, or at least that's what the Jews believed. But the Samaritans believed that they'd be raised from the dead on another mountain. And this became this really contentious thing. It doesn't seem that big of which mountain people would raise from the dead on. I think if God comes, I'm not going to be worried about which mountain he goes to, but, but that's okay. Um, and, um, and so when Jesus rolls up to the Samaritan woman at a well in John 4, her first concern is, wait, you guys say that we have to worship on the other mountain. The law about God, the idea about God, <coughs> won't allow her to recognise the very physical manifestation of the Son of God in front of her. In fact, it's some verses later where she sees it. God was not with her because of this mountain, so the Jews believed. But yet Christ comes to her. Says, if you had asked me, I would have given you living water. What does God say about those false laws we believe about God's willingness to draw near to us? Romans 8, 1 to 3. Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So these three things, the laws we place on ourselves, the laws others place on us, and the laws we believe about God that aren't true. And we don't live in an age today where we sacrifice lambs, or pigeons, 
or rabbits to be okay with God. But we actually do live in this pagan religion called the Imperial Western Empire where we take our equivalent of the sheep or the goat or the pigeon in plastic. And we feel these longings within ourselves and we feel these laws upon us which say we have to be current or cool or liked or popular. And we go to the altar that looks suspiciously like a counter and we deliver our lamb and we feel better for a time. But then a day later, we need to sacrifice again. Jesus comes to set us free from that law of sin and death. By way of finishing up, I want to read that Romans 7 passage again because I've left one scripture off the end of it through the rest of this talk. Feel free to to close your eyes again if you like. And taking on board all of what we've talked about this evening. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the gospel. That Christ delivers us from these laws. That Christ delivers us from captivity. And if you do not know that tonight, it is the best news you will ever hear. It is the best news you will ever hear. And if you sit here tonight and it's become old to you, I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would come tonight and it would become again to us the best news we have ever heard. Today, if you live under a law imposed by yourself, imposed by others, or that you wrongly believe is imposed by God, I believe the invitation from God here is, come to Jesus, all those whose work is hard, whose load is heavy, and you will be renewed. Why don't we close our eyes a moment? There's a lot there. So let's just ask God, Father, I ask you to bring to mind one thought for us. One thing that, um, that challenges us or convicts us or encourages us or draws us to you. With that 
thought in our mind, let's just stand together. We're going to worship God and give him thanks. We're going to ask him to, um, feel free to stand now, to awaken that thing in us where maybe it's become stale. Um, But I also invite people during this time as we worship together to come and kneel at the cross on the other side there. If you don't know Jesus, we'd love to pray with you. And, um, And if you do... And you want this to become true again, then uh, let us let us pray together.